Praise the Lord. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 18, and I'm continuing to teach on the love of God being the greatest thing that we could have operating in our life. We started talking about how important that was on Monday night, then I talked on Tuesday morning about you can't give away what you don't have, so you have to experience God's love before you can operate in it to others. Then on Tuesday night, we started talking about what happens if there is problems. If you aren't walking in love, how do you walk in love towards others? And I started talking about that there's four possibilities when you have problems. Either it's you, it's them, it's both of you, or it's God. And sometimes God will... Um, he doesn't ever make us hate people or not love people, but He will make us move on. There are times that he doesn't want relationships to work. And I used a lot of examples of that. But like, say, for instance, if you're lusting after somebody and just desiring to marry them, but it's outside of God's will, God could divide, you know, the way he divided the tongues at the Tower of Babel and things like this. And so it's possible that God may not be wanting a relationship to work. And so we talked about that, and um, there was a lot of things in there. You know, if you've missed any of this teaching... I encourage you to get the CDs or the the DVDs of these meetings. We're, we're uh, videoing every single thing that's done. And so there will be a total of nine teachings on this. And you really need to get this and go over it because uh, I put out a lot of material and I think it would help you. So we talked about those four possibilities. If you discern that you're the problem, how do you handle it? We talked about you humbling yourself and either getting rid of your offense and just burying the thing or if you've actually done some damage to the other person about humbling yourself and going and talking to them and repenting of it and in the vast majority of cases that would solve things we talked about how that you talk to that person before you talk to any other person about what happened major deal right there and we were taking these from uh matthew chapter 18 where the lord says you go first to the person and seek to reconcile If they don't hear you, if they don't reconcile by you going in yourself, you take one or two others that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word can be established. If they don't hear that, you bring it before the church. If they don't hear the church, then you treat them as a heathen and a publican. And this morning in our teaching, I related that to the instructions that the Apostle Paul gave in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the man who had committed incest And he told the people there that they needed to judge him and turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And I explained what that was talking about this morning, that that isn't talking about just kicking him out of the body of Christ, excommunicating him, damning him to hell or something like that. But that's talking about you withdraw your fellowship, support, and your intercession from them. Now, if you weren't here... You may question that, but I went into quite a bit of uh, explanation this morning and I gave some examples of that and I believe that that's exactly what this is talking about. And it's the same thing that Matthew chapter 18 was talking about when it says that you bring him before the church and if he doesn't hear the church, then you treat him as a heathen and a publican. That doesn't mean that you hate him, that you are praying that he will you know, roast in hell forever. This is just talking about that you treat the man... Uh, as if he's a sinner and he's going to reap what he sows. And that's what this is talking about. So that's what we've already covered. One other thing I'd like to say before I get back into these verses, if the fourth possibility 
was to happen. That it's not you, it's not him. It's just that God is putting an end to this relationship and wanting you to move on. And again, there's qualifications to this. This is not an excuse for you to divorce your mate saying, I believe that God's put an end to this relationship. That doesn't square with the Word of God. But there are scriptures that says, Come out from among them, be ye separate. Touch not the unclean thing. What fellowship hath Christ with Belial? You know, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. There are scriptures that say that. And there are times that God will want you to separate because a relationship is an ungodly relationship. If that's the case, and it's not that you have done anything. It's just that it's not working. There is not an anointing. There's an anointing present to stop this relationship instead of to cause it to go on. Um, If that's so, well, then what do you do with that? Well, first of all, you obey God. If you feel that this is God that's putting an end to a relationship, then let it end. And then secondly, if you do that, remember that it's always temporary. If nothing else, we're going to be reconciled in heaven. Amen. Whatever the problem is, it's only temporary, and it's very possible that it's only temporary in this life. And so if you do part, don't wait until something bad happens. You know, I, could, I really want to get to these verses, and I'm going to do this. But let me just say some things quickly that I've seen in ministry, I've seen in this ministry that people come here and they're a blessing and they, they are, are a blessing to us, and then after a while, it's just time for them to move on. And I don't know that it's anything bad. I don't know that they did anything bad, that I did anything bad. It's just that, you know, it's just time for them to move on. And I've seen people that have lost their excitement about being at the ministry and they just no longer are excited. You could tell that they just, their attention is somewhere else. And you know what? When I see that happen... Uh, I will try a few things to make sure that it's just not Satan that's diverting their attention. But if they're healthy, if they've got a good relationship with the Lord, you know, when I see that happen, it's just time for the person to move on. And things like that happen. I mean, if if, uh, every person that came to this Bible school just loved it, we had such a wonderful relationship that they couldn't break themselves apart, you know, and they just had to stay here. Well, then we'd just have a huge amount of Christians staying here in Colorado Springs and nobody would ever go anywhere. Sometimes the Lord will just put an end to a thing in an effort to nudge you and move you on. I can tell you when I've been in places, I when I was in Childress, I mean, not Childress, Seagaville, Texas, I love Seagaville, Texas, and there was nothing to love about it. It was a, a supernatural anointing. God called me there. I prayed for those people. I gave my life to it, and we struggled. We were starving. Uh, you know, we didn't have money to eat. Everything in the natural was going bad, but I love that place. Everybody told me, get out of there. Those people aren't receiving. Shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere else. And I just love those people. And I loved them and I prayed and I was committed to stay there and die there if that's what it took to reach the people of Seagaville, Texas. And one day I was down in our church building praying and I mean, it's just like I took a, a garment off, a coat off or something and put it over there and all of a sudden that desire for Seagaville left. I looked out the window and I said, this is the ugliest place. What am, what am I doing in this place? And all of a sudden, I just hated it. And you know what? I couldn't get out of that place quick enough. And it was such a radical switch that, I mean, I started praying about it. And I prayed for a couple of weeks just to make sure I wasn't missing God. But I just lost the grace 
to be there. And that's one of the ways that God speaks to you. And the same things happen sometimes in relationships. That God anoints relationships for a period of time for you to accomplish things. But then it's time for you to go on. So if you experience that happening, don't fight and try and make something work that God isn't wanting to work. Because if you get outside of God's will and start trying to force something, you know what? You are going to wind up doing something stupid and offending somebody or being hurt and it will hinder future relationship. If you feel that it's God, and again, it takes some maturity to understand this, but if you feel that it's God, you need to move on and bless that person and keep the doors open. For instance, if it's a church and you feel called to the church and you go there, but then all of a sudden, you know, you just, it's time for you to move on. And I believe things like that do happen. Pastors don't like to hear this very much, but I believe it does happen. And one of the reasons is because no one pastor has everything that they need to offer their people. And I believe that's the reason the Bible says we should have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church. There needs to be different giftings. But the way the church functions today and the way it functioned when I pastored, I'm not trying to be critical, I'm just saying this is where we are. Uh, you have one gifting primarily that does nearly all of the teaching. And maybe you are a great teacher, but maybe you don't have a missions emphasis. Maybe you don't have this. And you know what? God wants His people to be grounded and rounded in all of these things and well-versed. And so I believe sometimes God will send a person to a church for a period of time to get what that minister has to offer, but then to complete them, He'll have to move them to another place because either He wants to use them in service, there isn't an opportunity to serve in that church, or He wants them to get a different flavor, a different teaching, a different exposure from something that they aren't getting. And so sometimes God will move people on. And you know what? If you just pick up and leave, or if you overstay your welcome until the point that you aren't being fed, things aren't working, but instead of having enough wisdom to go on, you just stay and force the issue, you know what? You're going to stay until you do get mad, until you do say something, until you do offend somebody, or something happens, and then there's going to be a rift, and you may never be able to have that relationship again. You know, a good friend of mine, Pastor Bob Yandy, and who pastors Grace Fellowship in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's about a 3,000-member church, and he's a great guy. But he, I've learned some of these things from him, and he tells people in his church, you know, that if something's going sour, if they don't like the way he's doing something, he'll just tell them, you know, maybe you were supposed to be somewhere else. Maybe God's leading you in another direction. There's not many pastors that would say that. And he gave one example of a couple who went on a missions trip, and when they came back from the missions trip, they were on fire. They wanted to do stuff for missions, and they wanted to start up a missions program in his church, and they bugged him every service. And it went, this went on for, I don't know, weeks, maybe months, and they just kept talking about, we've got to have missions, we've got to do this, you've got to get in front of the people. And finally, he just told them, he says, you know what? That is not the vision that God has given me for this church. And you know what? You need to go somewhere where you can satisfy that desire. And they said, but pastor, God called us to this church. We would never leave here. We love you. We just want to see missions. And anyway, they tried to work it through, but it wasn't working. Finally, he just told them, he says, you know, somebody else in Tulsa, I forgot who it was right now, but they're a great missions church. And he says, why don't you go over there? Why don't you go join up with them? This is where your heart is. 
And he says, you would be better off over there. And so anyway, they really didn't much want to leave, but they really did want to see more happen with missions. And so at Bob's urging, they went over to that church. And you know, they weren't there but just a couple of weeks. And that church announced that they were starting a missions program and they were looking for somebody. And that couple stepped in and they became the head of that missions program. And they're reaching the world and they're so satisfied. And they came back to Pastor Bob and says, thank you, thank you, thank you, because you know what? We... We're just struggling. We knew God had called us to do more for missions, and it was the fact that we should have been over here, and it worked out fine. There's not very many pastors that will have that much maturity. I mean, they just look at, we're going to keep you here regardless, and they keep you until you get discontented and upset, and it's a round peg in a square hole type of situation, and sometimes God will move you on. If that happens, have enough gumption. To leave when you feel that God has uh, led you in a different direction. And don't shut the door. Don't make it so that you have to have a fight with the pastor before you leave. Leave and tell him we love you. And boy, you've sown into our life and we'll never forget the deposit that you've made. But God has led us to do this and to do something else. And keep the door open and love them and don't make it bad on them. You owe a pastor an explanation if you leave his church. You do, because I guarantee you they notice when you're gone. And you owe them an explanation. If it's a huge church, you may not be able to get to the senior pastor, but you could at least write a note, get on a website and put something in. We love you, but we felt God has led us to do something. If you feel that God is one that's led you in a different direction, at least keep the door open. And I've really talked about this more than I intended to, but that's great truth. And, you know, I've got many examples of this. I won't give the whole thing, but I've had people that I felt we were led in different directions, and I just kept the door open. I kept loving these people, even though that things weren't working out. This guy that started me in ministry, I don't care if he was to hate me the rest of his life. There's nothing he could do that would ever undo the good that he's done. I honor this guy. I, I would do anything for this guy. But... Uh, there was a break in the relationship. I could spend a long time talking about this, but I just kept the doors open. And did you know because of that, something like 20 years later, this guy had problems, got out of the ministry, was mad at God, was mad at everybody. And because I kept the doors open, God led me. I called him, talked to him, gave him some of my materials. He got back in the ministry, and he's now back serving God because I left the door open. And didn't close it, even though he, this guy cussed me out one time, told me I was of the devil and, you know, some bad things. And yet I just kept loving the guy and never did retaliate. And because of it, I was able to help him get back in the ministry. You need to make sure that you don't ever just slam the door on a relationship and bury the thing. Man, I don't believe that that's God. So anyway, we've talked about all of those things. So after, after Matthew chapter 18, these instructions that were given... Uh, about going to them singly, taking two, uh, one or two more with you, bring them before the church. If they don't hear that, then uh, let them be unto you as a heathen, as a publican. Let's see. What verse is that? That was verse 17. That's where we ended. Now look at this. And this is not a new thought. This is the same teaching. Verse 18. Verily I say unto you, 
Whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. You know, we take these verses and we teach from this that, you know, will you agree with me and we agree and we claim this healing and we bind this demon and we loose this thing and we do this and we apply this in all kinds of ways. And I'm not saying that there isn't some truth and some application to that. But again, you've got to let the context of a passage of Scripture be the dominant force of interpretation. He had just talked about how to resolve differences and how to go one at a time. Take two more with you. Bring them before the church. And then if that doesn't happen, uh, turn them over to Satan would be the terminology in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And then he says, now if two of you agree on this earth as touching anything, it shall be done. You know what he's talking about literally here was if you bind a person's sins to them as he was talking about to turn them over to Satan and withdraw your intercession and instead from this time forth they will reap what they sow. Then it will be bound in heaven. And if you lose something, it will be loosed in heaven. He's talking about church discipline is what these verses are are applying to. And he's telling you about how effective your intercession is when you bind Satan from... Uh, bringing his death on a person even though they've opened up sins and how effective it is when you loose them and turn them loose and let them go and you no longer intercede. That's the context and that's exactly what he's talking about. And then right after these verses, he continues this thing about how to reconcile and how to deal with people. So in context, this isn't talking about binding demonic powers up here and loosing uh, revival and praying over healings and things like this. This is talking about church discipline and the power that the body has. When we put ourselves in agreement and you intercede for people, it's powerful. It is super powerful. And if you quit that intercession, then that also is powerful. And that's the context of what he's talking about. And so in verse 21, it says, Then... Came Peter him. See, this is linking it to the previous deal. This isn't a brand new start. It isn't uh, a new topic. It's not something that's disconnected. It's after Jesus was teaching them about how you reconcile, bring it before the church, church discipline, and if you bind this, if you determine this, it's going to be done. You have power when it comes to dealing with other people. And then... When Peter heard that, it says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? I'm sure Peter thought he was being very generous, saying, Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. That's 490 times. You know, he wasn't saying... That on the 491st time, you are free not to forgive this person. This isn't literal, I don't think. It's just, you know, it'd be like you coming up and say, how many times do I forgive somebody? A dozen times, I say a thousand times. It's just a figure. It's a number. Nobody's going to sin against you 490 times in one day. This isn't saying that on the 491st time, you've got the right to be offended. 
and not forgive. It's just saying you've, you're shooting way too low. In other words, you just forgive as many times as they come and ask forgiveness. Now you have to compare this passage with um, Luke chapter 17, verse 4, and Jesus was teaching about forgiveness there. And he says, if your brother sinned against you seven times in one day, and seven times in one day come and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. So it is linked to that person repenting and humbling themselves. But if this person humbles themselves and comes to you, you're supposed to forgive them 490 times in one day. Or really what he's saying is there should be no limit to your forgiveness. Now I believe that most of us probably know that or suspect it, but we don't operate that way very often. Most people really do struggle with forgiveness. And there's a number of reasons for that, and I'm going to try and deal with some of them. And so in verse 23, he says, Therefore, now here's Jesus. He just told Peter, he says, Forgive 490 times in one day. Therefore, the word therefore, when you see it, you're supposed to look and see what it's there for. That means that it's linking these two passages together. This is not another teaching. This is not something disjointed. All of these things. He's been talking about church discipline. He talked about binding and loosening, not in the sense of receiving your healing or doing something else. He was talking about church discipline, the power you have to intercede or to not intercede in the way it will affect others. Then he says you forgive an infinite number of times and now he gives a parable that illustrates what he's saying and all of these things are still talking about the exact same thing. So in verse 23 he says, Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Did you know 10,000 talents is 120 million ounces? If this is talking about gold, and if you figure gold recently it hit $600 an ounce, did you know that this is $7.2 billion at $600 an ounce? And again, I don't believe that the Lord is saying that this actually happened. I can't in my wildest imagination believe that somebody really... And this was just one of the creditors. This means that this master had many creditors and one of them was brought to him that owed him $7.2 billion. I don't believe that this is intended to be taken literally. It's just like me saying... You know, somebody, what would happen if you were, had somebody that come to you and they owed you a billion dollars? I'm just throwing that figure out there as this exorbitant amount that is making a point. I don't believe that he's saying, you know, at the, at the two, 7.3 billion level, you're justified in not forgiving them or something like that. He's just throwing this huge sum out, 10,000 talents. And he says that he owed him 10,000 talents. It didn't say whether it was gold or silver, but if it was gold, that would be $7.2 billion at $600 an ounce. And in verse 25 he says, But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. In those days, that's the way they paid debts. If you got in debt and you couldn't pay, you didn't file bankruptcy you got sold into slavery. And if it was a huge debt that you couldn't pay, they would sell your wife and children. That's what it's talking about in 2 
Kings chapter 4 where the widow came to Elisha and says, the creditor has come to take my children for slaves because her husband had died and she couldn't make the payments and that's the way they paid for things. You got sold into slavery until you paid the bill. So this was the practice of the day and all he was doing was exercising his rights. He was the king and he was calling his note due. $7.2 billion worth. And so he was going to sell this man and his wife and his children until the payment could be made. And in verse 26 it says, The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. You know, I doubt seriously that this guy was going to be able to pay off $7.2 billion worth of debt. Uh, But anyway, that was his promise. And the main thing was he worshipped him. You know, if you look this word worship up... It means to kiss the faith, to, to face, to adore, to do all of these things. I mean, this guy humbled himself and started praising this master and talking about his goodness and mercy. And it says in the next verse that the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, not justice. He didn't deserve this. This was totally an act of mercy on this master's part. He was moved with compassion and he loosed him and forgave him the debt. You know, we could talk about a lot of things. This was some master to forgive this huge debt of 10,000 talents, which could have been as much as $7 billion. Boy, that is awesome. I'm going to come back to that. That is an important point right there. He forgave him this debt. And in verse 28 it says, But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence. A hundred pennies. A penny was a day's wage. Matthew chapter 20 verse 2 talks about this parable where a man went out and hired these vineyards, these people to work in his vineyard, and he says, I'll pay you a penny a day. That was the going wage. A penny was a day's wage. So he owed him a hundred pennies, a hundred days work. You know, it depends on what value you put on things. If a person, if you say that a person makes $100 a day, that would be at the most $10,000. $10,000 compared to $7.2 billion that the other guy was forgiven. Did you know that that, if my math is correct, that is one seven hundred and twenty thousandth as much money as the other guy owed. You'd have to multiply by 720,000 to get the same amount of money. Quite a, quite a small amount compared to what he was forgiven. And it says this guy went out and uh, found one of his fellow servants which owed him a hundred pence and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me that thou owest. He grabbed this guy by the throat, choking him. Pay me what you owe. And look at the guy. He said, he fell down at his feet and besought him, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Did you know this was exactly, word for word, the same thing that this guy had said to the man that he owed $7.2 billion to. This man who owed him the equivalent of $10,000 or something, did the exact same thing, begged for the same mercy, and this guy had no pity on him whatsoever. And in verse 30 it says, He would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. 
And then in verse 31, it says, So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because you desired me. Should you not have uh, had compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And then in verse 34, it says, His Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Man, these are some strong statements. Some strong statements. And I'm not sure that I have total answers to this, but there are some points here that are pretty obvious that we need to take heed to. First of all, the reason that Jesus gave this parable is because he had just told the people. He had told his um, disciples to forgive and he would told them about how to reconcile and get along with people. And so Peter says, how, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? And he says, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Four hundred and ninety times. An infinite amount of times. And you know what? Most people probably would have just thought, well... That's too many. That's too much. I can't do this. And so he gave this parable to help them understand how to forgive. And basically, there's a number of points. One of them is, you know what? This is a command from God to forgive. I know that this isn't attractive and this isn't the right motivation for most people. Most people want to know exactly how this is going to benefit them and stuff. They really aren't that concerned with uh, doing everything that God tells them. That says a lot right there. You know what? If you claim that Jesus is your Lord, then that means He's in control. And if God tells you to do this, then you just do it. It's not debatable. It's not up for uh, a vote. If God told you to forgive... When people come and ask for your forgiveness, then you forgive. You know, if you would just make Jesus your Lord and quit making your own decisions and running your own life, that would end the problem right there. That's really simple, and that's the simplest answer. You just make it to where you aren't the one that's running your life. You let Jesus live your life through you. You let Him live instead of you live, and you know what? You can walk in love with people regardless of what they do to you. If you're a person who's so offended and you just are struggling to forgive this person, you can say it a million different ways, but the bottom line is, you know what? You are controlling your life. Jesus isn't in charge of your life, or Jesus will cause you to forgive other people. That is the heart of Jesus. Jesus turned around to the very people who crucified Him and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And every one of you have that same Spirit of Christ on the inside of you if you are born again. It says in Romans 8 and 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If you're born again, you have the same person on the inside of you that turned around to the very people crucifying him and said, Father, forgive them. And he is telling you to follow in his footsteps. It says in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it's verse 26 or 28, it says, Be ye kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. It's a command. And so I don't care how you feel. I don't care how much you've been hurt. Nothing else matters. 
God told you to forgive. That ought to end it right there. You just forgive because you've been told to forgive. Amen? And if you were absolutely, totally sold out and submitted and surrendered to God, you know what? That would be enough to cause you to forgive people. And I know some of you are looking at me like, well, I, I want to do that and I've tried, but I just still feel all of this. Man, I could get plumb off the subject right here and I could go to preaching on how we have made feelings more of a God in our life than God. We obey feelings more than we obey God. And I guarantee you, there's a lot of people that because you feel something, you think that's reality. I don't care how you feel. You know, there's been times that I've wanted to punch somebody's lights out. I remember when I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, witnessing to a guy, and he had a big old wad of chewing tobacco, and he spit it right in my face. Boom, like that. And you know what? That didn't give me warm fuzzies and make me want to just love this guy. Oh, thank you, thank you for doing it. I wanted to punch a guy's lights out. I was, it didn't bless me. But I know that that's not what Jesus wanted me to do. And I remember that he forgave the people. And I can guarantee you, I had a guy with me. You could ask him. I never missed a word in the sentence. I wiped the spit off and kept talking to this guy about the love of God and ministering to him. And I just kept going. I didn't feel like doing that, but I knew that that's what the Lord told me to do. And so I just put down my feelings and did what God told me to do. There's some... How did you do that? You just do it. It's part of growing up. You know what? When you were a kid, you kind of did what you wanted to and, and you were supposed to come in at a certain time, but you were having so much fun, you just kept doing it and you... And so you stayed and then you got in trouble and you got spanked or grounded. And you know, when you're a kid, you don't always do what you're supposed to do. But as you grow up, did you know, you don't feel like going to work sometimes. You wake up and you're tired and you don't feel like going to work, but it's part of being an adult. You set an alarm clock if you have to and wake yourself up and you get up and you go to work and you go to work on time and you do what you're told to do. And you, you, there's times that you'd just as soon be home, times that you'd like to be on a vacation, but you can't do that and keep your job. And you know what? You grow up and do what you've got to do instead of what you just want to do. And if you're a person that, well, you know, I, I'd like to be able to forgive them, but I just don't feel it. You're just immature. Was that too subtle? Anybody missed my point? Now, you know what? I feel some compassion, some compassion. And I'm going to talk about some other things that will help you get over your feelings and do things like that. But you know, the bottom line is, I don't care how you feel, do what's right. And if you have to sit there and say, I forgive you through gritted teeth, that's better than sitting there and indulging your feelings. Now, it's not the best. The best is when you can do it and actually convince your heart and get to where you're doing it out of a good heart. But I guarantee you, you aren't wrong to do what God told you to do. I don't care if you are having a problem with it. You do what's right. And if you would say and do the right things, you know eventually your emotions would begin to start following Amen. So he's te he gave us command to forgive 490 times if you have to. And so that ought to be good enough.
But notice some other things here. As we go back through this, there's a, there's a number of things that stand out to me. I think that one of the points that he's really trying to get across, it would help you to forgive others if you understood how much you have been forgiven. That has to be the obvious point of this parable. If you were to think about what you have done and how terrible it is, then you would have mercy upon other people. And that's the point that he's making. In comparison, did you know in comparison to what we have done to the Lord, nobody, nobody, nobody can hurt you near as much as you have hurt God. And some of you may disagree with that and say, well, I never committed adultery on God. Well, the Bible says, you know, that the friendship of this world is adultery. Every time you lusted after something besides God, God created us for fellowship with Him. And Adam and Eve were just totally focused on God. They were so God-focused that they didn't even realize they were naked until they ate of that tree. They didn't even have self-awareness the way that we talk about. They were totally God-focused. That's the way God made us to be, is totally consumed, focused upon God. And every time we unplug from that and go our own way and do our own thing, it's spiritual adultery. And there's many scriptures that, that compare it to that. I guarantee you there is nothing that anybody can do to you. If somebody comes along and murders your son, well, we kill God's son. There's nothing that can ever happen to any person here that God hadn't suffered a million times more. And if you could just understand how much God loved you and how much God forgave you, you know what? It would make you be merciful towards other people. A person... I'm going to say some things here, and I know somebody could take this wrong and think that I'm trying to condemn you or be mad at you. That's not my motive. I'm trying to enlighten us and get us to think differently because the world is just, in my estimation, so far out of whack, out of plumb from what God's Word uh, describes. But you know what? If you are angry at some person and just can't bring yourself to forgive them, then you know what? You have not got a good revelation of what you've been forgiven. You value yourself way, way, way too much. You don't understand what a jerk you've been. You do not see what God has forgiven you. You have never humbled yourself. And you've got totally misplaced values on things. And I know some of you may really take offense at that and say, you just don't know what's happened to me. But you know, it's absolutely true. Some of you think, well, you can't physically forgive people if they do certain things to you. Most people, it's kind of like, you know, you put a little fence around you and say anything within this boundary right here. You know, as long as they just criticize me a little bit, as long as this, this, as long as it's within these limits, well then yes, I think that I should be able to forgive. But if a person does this to me, I can't forgive them for that. Most people have limits. There are certain things that they believe fall within the guidelines of what you can forgive and others that you can't, but that is not true. The Scripture tells us to forgive, and it doesn't put qualifications on what it is that you forgive. 
You know, a friend of mine told a story, and I forget all the details, but he actually called this woman up and talked to her and verified this story. And there was a woman and her husband who had retired and were just looking forward to retirement. And on a Saturday morning, uh, they got up, and I forget all the details, but anyway, he went to a store, and there was a robbery in process. And he walked in on this robbery, and a guy took a hammer to him and hit him and bashed in his head and killed this man. And this woman's husband of 40, nearly 50 years was instantly taken from her and this guy murdered her husband. And you know, she was hurt and she grieved and I'm sure that she probably felt some anger at him, but based on what Jesus taught, she knew that she had to forgive this man and she prayed and she got over it, and she forgave him, and she went and visited him in prison. He was convicted and sent to prison, and she went and visited him in prison and took her husband's Bible that he had underlined and that he studied out of. And she said to him that, I want you to know that I forgive you and for what you've done to my husband. And she said, this is his Bible. This was his most important possession, and I want you to have it. And this man just broke down to see this expression of love from the wife of the man that he had killed. Anyway, he read the Bible. He got born again. And because of his good behavior, he was released after, I forget what the period of time was, after 20 years or something in prison. And now this man who murdered this woman's husband, this man and this woman travel around together. He's an evangelist and he preaches and she stands there and she calls him her son and loves him, and they travel around together to give an illustration of what Jesus can do in a person's life, and people are getting born again through that. And some of you can say, well, I'd never do that. Well, then according to this parable, you don't understand that in comparison, you have done anything that's been done to you, you have done that and much, much worse. You know, when you understand that you've been forgiven, all of a sudden it just changes your attitude and it makes you easier to forgive the other person. Again, that may not be the most exciting thing you've ever heard, but it, must be, it might be one of the most practical things you've ever heard. You just remember this. When you get mad at somebody and how dare them treat me this way, it will totally change your attitude if you just think, Father, I don't care what they've done. You know what? I've done worse to you. And yet you forgave me. And thank you for my forgiveness. When you recognize the... You know, in this parable, every one of us would agree with the point that Jesus was making that a man who was forgiven a debt of $7.2 billion certainly ought to be able to turn around and forgive a person that owes him 10000 I don't think there's a person in here that would disagree with this and not see the point that he's making. Such a huge debt forgiven. Man, if you were forgiven that much, how could you not turn around and forgive a person who has done infinitely less to you than what you've been forgiven? Everybody agrees with that. Well, the exact same thing is true in your life. If you would just recognize it, Father, you know, I don't deserve anything, and yet look how good you've been to me. Father, look how much you've forgiven me. Man, I deserve to burn in hell forever. And so do you. And some of you think, oh, not me. I'm a really good person. I'm doing, you know what? You're good compared to me in a relative sense. But the Bible says that you comparing yourselves among yourselves and measuring yourselves by yourselves are not wise. 
You know what? You might feel good about yourself if you compare yourself with somebody, some other person. But when you compare yourself with what God called you to be and what God created you to be and how far we've fallen, there's not a one of us that deserves anything but punishment. You don't get what you deserve. It is grace. And if you don't have that attitude that, man, you have been given, forgiven such a great debt, then how could you not turn around and forgive other people who've done relatively insignificant things to you. I don't care if it's murder. I don't care if it's adultery. I don't care if it's lying or if it's stealing or whatever happens. Whatever somebody does to you is nothing in comparison. You know, one of the problems is that we just don't have the right comparisons. We think in such short terms. It's like we got blinders on and all we can see is this physical world. And we only think in terms of that. But man, if you would begin to start getting into the Word and seeing things the way that God does it, you know what? In, in light of eternity, when you begin to start seeing things in the light of eternity, it just totally, totally changes your perspective. You know, a passage of Scripture that's similar to this is Romans chapter 8, and I believe it's verse 17 or 18 right there. I forget which one it is. But he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you know, I've known that scripture for a long time, but I forget how long ago this was. It was like five, six years ago or something. I was watching something on the Holocaust. And I just really, really got to feeling what some of those people who were uh, you know, killed and the terrible... Tragedies. I've been to Auschwitz and I've been through there and I've seen tables made out of human skin and lamps made out of human skin. I've seen rooms piled high of human hair. The Germans kept everything and detailed it and categorized it. They pulled the teeth out of those people. They pulled the gold out of their teeth. It was terrible. I saw where they slept. I walked through those gas chambers and you can still see ashes there and... Anyway, because of these things, I was watching this thing about what happened in Auschwitz. And I tell you, it just became graphic to me. And I was grieved. I was hurt over the terrible things. And I was thinking, God, you know, how could these people, and there's bound to have been some of those who were true believers, how could these people ever be compensated? In heaven, it says there's no more sorrow, there's no more crying, there's no more tears. This is so bad, how could anybody ever get over that and enjoy heaven? And I was really struggling with that thought. And the Lord led me to that scripture in Romans chapter 8. And he says that the things that we have suffered here aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. The reason that I was struggling with this and the reason that I think a lot of us struggle with things is because we're looking at it in only human terms, limited terms. We're thinking only in this life. We don't even have a clue what eternity is going to be like. I guarantee you one second in the presence of God with His pure love and joy flowing towards you is going to compensate you for I don't care how long you live and how bad this life is. We just don't even have a clue understanding how awesome God is and how wonderful heaven's going to be. In comparison, I guarantee you people, this life and everything that you've suffered down here, it'll be over. 
about one millionth of a second and you ought to basically have everything you've suffered in this life compensated for so that you can enjoy the rest of heaven. That's what Romans chapter 8 is saying. It's not even worthy to be compared. It's not even in the same category. The only reason we are so burdened and stuff is because we're so carnally minded and we're so limited here. You know, if you'd go to thinking about eternity, Paul talked about this. Man, there's so much I'd love to say on this. I, there, there are just a million things on this. But over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, he talks about that, man, we're persecuted. We're, it seems like we're appointed unto death. We suffer more than anybody else. He says, our outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. And then he said in verse 17, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Here he was talking about it seems like that he's treated worse than anybody. He says it's like they were appointed unto death. And if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he lists what some of his light afflictions were. Being stoned and left for dead, being beaten with rods, which is where they hang you up and take metal rods and break all of the bones in your uh, ankles and, and back here in your calves and your feet. Break the bones. That happened to him twice. He was beaten with whips three times. He had all these things happen. He was shipwrecked. He was persecuted. I mean, Paul, he said, everywhere I go, the Holy Spirit witnesses that bonds and afflictions abide me. Paul, he just always wound up in prison. You know, when we go into town, you go select a hotel and you get your hotel so that you can go, you know, minister and do things. Paul just went by the jail first and he says, uh, save me a spot. Amen. I'll be there soon. And I mean, he knew that that's where he was headed. Man, the apostle Paul had problems worse than any of us. And yet he says, it's just light affliction. Now, if Paul had worse problems than you do, and he was only calling it a light affliction, then how can you get off griping and complaining about how heavy your burden is? It's not because of the burden, it's because of the value you place on it. And you know how Paul said it was just a light affliction? He says, it's just for a moment. It's just for a moment. 50 or 60 years, just like a moment compared to eternity. Some of you are thinking, man, I've been married to this person for 20 years. What if it goes another 20 years? Just like that. It's no big deal. It's not a big deal. Well, I've been waiting on this forever. Ah, it's no big deal. Amen. I'm believing for this house. If I just don't get my house, you know, it's no big deal. If you die and never see those things manifest, you're going to have a house that is paved with, the streets are paved with gold. The foundation is stones. You know what? If you never get healed in this life, which I believe all of those things are available for us, but if you never get healed, you're going to be totally healed in heaven. It's no big deal. I've been suffering with this for a year. It's just a moment. If you would think about it correctly. See, when you think about things in eternal perspective, it just changes everything. When you think about how much Jesus paid And forgave you, you know what? It ought to be easy for you to turn around and forgive somebody else. That's like, you know, you go up and just knock somebody down, beat them up, nearly kill them. And then you repent and say, forgive me. And they forgive you. 
but somebody comes up and they just brush up against you accidentally as they walk by and you refuse to forgive them, boy, you're going to just take it to them. It's totally inconsistent. I tell you, if you're struggling with unforgiveness, and I know some of you think that I'm being mean and I'm not being compassionate, I'm trying to change your perspective. It's you that has made this thing such a big deal. And it's because you're looking at it only in human terms and you're comparing yourself with other people. And maybe you've suffered more than somebody else has suffered. But when it talks about, when when it's compared to the suffering that we cause God, it's not even worthy to be compared. And if you would remember that and think about that, you know what, it would allow you to forgive other people. It would just change your outlook on stuff. That's one of the points that he's making. It's a real obvious point. And then it says, here's, here's another reason, and this is kind of a negative reason, but I believe that this is the reason that he gave this. He's talking about church discipline. He's talking about forgive an unlimited number of times. He told you that because of the great debt that you've been forgiven, you certainly ought to be able to forgive others. And then down here at the end, this master, the fellow servants of this man came and told the master what he had done. And then the master delivered him to the tormentors. The master didn't himself torment this guy. What he did was just deliver him to the tormentors and the tormentors began to exact from him what he deserved. And you know, again, in the context, we were talking about turning a person over to Satan and stuff. I believe that what this is doing is illustrating that, you know what, God is not against us. God is for us. God is a spirit, and if you've been born again, God sees you in the spirit realm, and God is not imputing sin unto you. But there's another part to this deal, and that is uh, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. And if you are out there living in sin, God still loves you and God sees you in the Spirit and He sees you righteous and holy and pure. And I believe all of that. And I believe that God is not imputing your sins unto you. I believe that. And that's what I teach. And those of you that have listened to me, I believe that. But you know what? You still have a physical body. And if you go out here and yield it to the devil through your actions and specifically this parable is talking about through unforgiveness. If you don't forgive people and if you impute their sins unto them, then you know what? You have just yielded yourself to Satan, the author of that sin, and you have loosed the effects of sin in your life. And if we don't have the body praying and interceding for us and binding these negative influences that come as a result of our own actions, which I shared this this morning. If any of you missed it, I went into a lot more detail. But the body isn't operating that way today. And if that's true, well then you know what? You are, through unforgiveness, allowing the tormentor, Satan, to come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. You give place to the devil and you're going to be tormented. This didn't say that the master really did this. The master just took away, he had overridden Basically, justice. This was the law. The law was that if you don't pay your debts, you get sold until those are paid. And he stepped in and basically granted a pardon and extended mercy. But when this man refused to accept this and do the right thing, he took back his pardon and just allowed justice to take its course. And in a real sense, this is what God does. 
You know what? In this illustration, if a person wouldn't have responded to the church, then the church turns him over to Satan, quits fellowshipping with him, imputes his sins unto him instead of breaking the control of his sins. And you know what? What he has sowed begins to start operating in his life. So here's another major reason that you need to operate in forgiveness. That you know what? Forgiveness is just sicking the devil upon you. It allows Satan to come into your life big time. It opens up a door to all kinds of things. In the beginning of this teaching, I used James chapter 3 and verse 16. And that verse says, where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. Not some evil works, not some bad evil works. It says every evil work. Just think of anything Satan wants to do. Financial, to destroy your finances. I guarantee you it could be tied directly to the fact that you're operating in strife and unforgiveness. When you're in strife and unforgiveness, you have opened up a door to every evil work. That would include financial disaster. And you may be a person who's got great talents and abilities and you should be making it and things should be working, but Satan has a direct inroad to you every time you get into unforgiveness. You may be believing God for healing and you just can't understand why healing isn't working and yet you're over here just angry, bitter, you criticize your mate, you criticize your kids, you yell at your dog, you yell at the person that cuts you off in traffic, you're angry, you're bitter, you're quick to criticize, you gossip, you do all kinds of things and you just can't understand. You've paid your tithes, you give every time the bucket comes by and you can't understand why it's working. You open up a door to every evil work. You open up a door to sickness and disease. You know, I could name some diseases right now that in my experience uh, are nearly always, always, always linked to unforgiveness and bitterness. I'm not going to do it because I don't think it's always linked. And if I was to say it out loud, some of you would make a doctrine out of it and think that you couldn't get healed if you don't do this. I don't think that that's true every time. But I have observed that many times people's sickness are linked to certain things. And unforgiveness, there are a number of sicknesses that I can just nearly every time say causes certain sicknesses. And some people don't recognize this. Some people can't understand why they aren't prospering, why things aren't working. And I'm telling you that unforgiveness is a direct inroad of Satan into your life. And here's another great truth that goes right along with that. You know, a lot of people can't forgive because they feel that by their unforgiveness and by their anger, they're punishing the other person. And they feel that they've got to be punished. They want vengeance. They want to hurt them as much as they've been hurt. You know, in some cases, your anger may hurt the other person. But in the vast majority of cases, the person that you're angry at and refusing to forgive has gone on and forgotten you and you aren't hurting them at all. Anger hurts you. Anger is a direct inroad of Satan into your life. Where envying and strife is, there's confusion in every evil work. You're hurting yourself. You aren't hurting the other person. You might be hurting them to some degree, but I can guarantee you, you're hurting you much, much more than you are ever hurting another person. And if you understood that, again, it's to your advantage to forgive. It's to your advantage to let it go and forget it. 
Amen? Amen. And here's one other point that I'm going to make before I quit. But you know, I mentioned this about the master, that when the servant pled with him to forgive him these 10,000 talents, the master was moved with compassion and forgave him. Now you need to think about this for a second. For this man to forgive a credit, I mean a debtor of his, the equivalent of $7.2 billion. This says huge, huge amounts about this man. This man was either so stinking, filthy, rich that $7.2 billion was not a big deal to him. Or he didn't love money and things as much as he loved people. He had a different priority, a different value system. You know what? This man could not have forgiven if he had the attitude about money that most of us have. The scripture says in Colossians 3, 5 that covetousness is idolatry. And you know, Americans today, they, don't, they wouldn't consider themselves to be idol worshipers. And I guarantee you, Americans have a lot of idolatry. We covet. Boy, you got to... You know, I saw some things on the television where this new phone came out. I forgot what they call it. And people camped out for, what, 20 hours? To get an iPhone? It cost five or six hundred dollars, and the people who make it were saying, Don't buy the first generation. Wait until we get the bugs worked out. The price will come down and it'll be better. And yet, people coveted this, had to have it. You know, I don't know every person individually, but that just looks to me like idolatry, covetousness. They had it. I know some of you think I'm stretching it. But I tell you what, for a person to camp out for 20 hours to buy a stupid little phone, they probably already had three or four phones. It's not like they needed it. It was not like it's a necessity that's going to help. You know what? That is covetousness. You just have to have it. You have to have it. It's covetousness. We covet a lot of things. This man wasn't covetous. He had a different value system. And so here's another thing about forgiveness. You know, if you can't forgive a person because of what they've done to you, it says something about your value system. It says, first of all, that you being treated right is more important than you obeying God. It says that you and your comfort is more important to you than serving God. It says that you are number one in your life and not God. Amen or oh me. You know, this isn't a sermon that you run the aisles on. (laughs) But it'll help you if you'll receive it. If you can't forgive a person, then you know what? Your priorities are way out of whack because you're looking at things temporary. You're thinking about my life will never be the same. Well, it's just temporary. Your eternal life's going to be great. You ought to be able to forget them. I don't care if they maimed you and you hobbled the rest of your life. You know what? You're going to be whole someday. You can get over it. Doesn't matter what went on. It doesn't matter how deep the hurt is, how much they rejected you. God's love for you is infinitely greater than their rejection and hurt. 
And if you would think on how much God loved you instead of how much this person hates you, I guarantee you, you'd be able to rejoice. It means that you just, you've been violated and you are so burdened over what happened to you that you don't think about other people. This man, this rich man, it says a lot about him that he was moved with compassion and forgave. He valued that person more than he valued what that person had taken from him. When you don't forgive a person, you know what? You're saying, I value me and my feelings more than I value you. And somebody's thinking, well, what's wrong with that? The Bible says that we're supposed to esteem others better than ourselves. We're not supposed to just look on our own thing. We're supposed to look on the affairs of others. You know, I know that there's, just by the law of odds, there's bound to be people in here that really struggle with forgiving some other people. There's bound to be people in here that have absolute hatred in their heart for some other people. And I believe you're the cream of the crop. Many of you came long distances. You aren't your average nod to God crowd. This isn't the Sunday morning crowd. I mean, you guys are probably the cream of the crop. And yet I bet you there's people in here that struggle a lot with unforgiveness. And you've never thought it was because of any of these things that I'm talking about. But I believe that this parable is saying these things. I don't know how you get around it. It's The main point is, if you've been forgiven so much, how could you not forgive somebody else? You are opening up a door to the devil. You're going to be delivered to the tormentors if you can't get over this. You're hurting yourself. Satan is going to come in and destroy you. It's to your advantage to forgive. You aren't hurting them. You're hurting yourself. And it's because you've placed missed priorities. This man loved the servant and his wife and his children more than he loved his money and his bottom line. And there's not a lot of people that love other people more than they love themselves. And that's the reason you have trouble forgiving. It's not because of what other people do to you. It's what's on the inside of you that makes you angry. It's because of your own decisions and your own value systems. When you begin to start thinking properly and you have the right thoughts on the inside and the right values, it just changes things. You know, Paul said he died to himself. I'm crucified with Christ. If you took a corpse and put a corpse out here in front of us, I could spit on this corpse, kick the corpse, insult the corpse, ignore the corpse. But if it's a corpse... It's not going to be hurt. You know why you're so hurt? Because you aren't dead to yourself. Because you love yourself so much. And that's why you get so hurt. Isn't that exciting? And so what's the antidote to this? Love somebody else. Love more than you love yourself. you got to start with God. You've got to love God more than you love yourself. And if He tells you, if it's a command to forgive, then that ought to end it right there. You love Him. He's done so much for you that you know what? I'll forgive this person if it takes everything I've got. I don't care what it takes. I will not operate in anger and bitterness because my Father, the one who gave His Son for me and died for me, told me to forgive and that settles it. It's over. But then you begin to realize, I've been forgiven so much. How could I not turn around and forgive somebody who's done relatively insignificant things to me? 
And then you see that you're opening up a door to the devil. It's going to destroy you. It's not going to destroy anybody else. It's going to destroy you if you don't forgive. And then you recognize that, you know what, your priorities are all out of line. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the damage done unto you more than you are people. You are putting your own welfare ahead of other people. And if you understood those things, I think that's four things we talked about right there. You know, if you'd just understand those four things, that would solve the issue right there. And I guarantee you, you could start walking in love. But to do this, you know what? This takes some humility. I've said some things that are against yourself and that make you uh, responsible. And most people don't like that. You have to humble yourself to receive this. And like it says in James chapter 1, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Excuse me, that's... uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, but that's a good scripture too. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may lift you up. But I was thinking James chapter 1, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. If you would humble yourself and acknowledge these things to be true and deal with these things, I guarantee you, you could turn around and forgive other people. You know, I could give you a lot of testimonies. I'm not going to do all that. I need to quit here. But I have had... Uh, lots of times that people have hated me, have done things to me, and by the grace of God, I can truthfully say I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not holding a grudge against anybody. There's people that would do things to hurt me tonight to this day, and yet I hadn't got an angry bone in me about any of this. I am not upset and unforgiving towards any person on the face of the earth. And I've had a lot of reasons to do it. I've had some bad things happen, just like all the rest of you. And you know what? You can walk in forgiveness. You do not. And the scripture says over in Romans chapter 12, it says, don't recompense evil for evil. Vengeance is mine. Let me take care of it. And then it goes on to say, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink because in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Did you know by loving your enemy, you lose God on them? And I guarantee you, God can handle them better than you can. When you walk in love, it just... There is a supernatural blessing and anointing that flows through love and turning the other cheek and being kind to the very people who are trying to destroy you that just overcomes all kinds of things. You know, Jamie and I, we love each other and we have a great marriage, but we aren't perfect. And there's times that she gets ticked off at me and then I don't like some things that she does. And you know, there's been times that Jamie has... Yes, you do. She said, I met... And there's been times in the past where she turned a cold shoulder and she nagged and griped and said some things... I'll hear about this tonight. (laughs) But here's my point. You know what? If she wants to get down in the flesh, and if she wants to fight me by herself, if push comes to shove, I can take her. (laughs) Amen. If she wants to duke it out, I'm stronger than her, and I can take her. And I make a living with my words. Amen. I can out talk her. You know, when it gets into the flesh, I can can deal with her flesh. But you know what really gets me is when I know she didn't like what I did. 
but instead of giving me what I deserve and griping and complaining or doing something, she just is sweet and kind and she loves me and gives me what I don't deserve and I realize, oh no, she's walking in love. And and you know what? I'd just as soon get down and duke it out with her, amen. When she gets to flowing in love, I just might as well run up the white flag because I guarantee you I'm going to lose. Love never fails. And I tell you, the most powerful thing you can do is love a person when they've done something that is unlovely or something that you don't like. It's a powerful force. And yet, it's not human nature. Our first choice is to always get up and defend ourselves. But God said, vengeance is mine. You know what? It takes faith. It takes faith not to retaliate and say all of those stinging things that you can think of. And instead, just love and trust that God is going to deal with them. It takes faith. It doesn't take any faith to be angry. It doesn't take any faith to be bitter. It doesn't take any faith to sit there and criticize and nag or turn the cold shoulder or to do any of the other things that we do. Those things come naturally. And it says over in James chapter 1 that the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. You will never accomplish a godly end with your carnal anger. Sometimes you feel like you will. You think, if I just turn both barrels and blast them, man, this will do it. But the Bible says the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. You know what? You're always better off to walk in love and let God deal with them. And you know, because Jamie and I as a whole, we really do do this. I can't even think last time we've had an argument or a disagreement, except probably tonight. We get along really good. But you know, one of the reasons we get along good is because I am not the one to straighten her out and she doesn't feel that she's the one to straighten me out. And you know what? She's turned me over to God and I've turned her over to God. And when we see... I'm not her spiritual head. I know by saying that I upset somebody's theology, but I'm not her spiritual head. And I am not the one that corrects her and does all of these things. You know, one time I was saying something in the Bible school about how Jamie is the kind that she could be a hermit. Jamie loves to just stay at home. We live out in the boonies. You can't even see another house from our place. I love it. And most people just get the shakes when they go out there like, man, you're 19 miles to the nearest grocery store? And they just can't stand it, you know, and stuff. We love it. And Jamie could live there and not go out and... You know, I could be gone for two or three weeks and she wouldn't miss me. Amen. (laughs) I mean, I feel privileged that Jamie lets me live with her. Jamie is a... (laughs) Maybe that was an exaggeration. She could go one week and not miss me. But I'm saying that Jamie is the kind, you know, that can just do things on her own. And I was saying something to the students about that and that, you know, some people think that she's not hospitable, but it's just Jamie's a loner. She just likes being alone. We both like being alone. 
and stuff. And that's not bad. I don't see it as bad. But anyway, I was saying something about that. And I had a student come up and says, all right, I want to pray with you. And we're going to pray. And we're going to agree that Jamie is going to change. And that Jamie's going to start wanting to have people over to the house and entertaining. And she's going to be all this. And I said, I'm not praying that. And she says, why aren't, why wouldn't you? And I said, that's not my responsibility to change, Jamie. That's who she is. And I love her the way she is. And you know what? I've learned to adjust. I am not trying to make Jamie who I want her to be. And Jamie's not trying to make me a certain way. We love each other the way you are. Many of you don't love your mate. You love who you want your mate to be. But you don't really love your mate the way they are. And the Lord didn't tell you how to change your mate. He didn't tell you to pray that your mate changed. There isn't any scriptures in the Bible talking about how you change your mate. It just tells you to love them the way that they are. And if you'd do that, I guarantee you, it would solve a lot of problems. Let God be the one that corrects them. God can take care of them a lot better than you can. Amen? Oh, that's good news. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, Father, we love you and we are just thankful for these truths.